morning, everyone. If you, uh, if you have a Bible, could I invite you to turn to Ephesians chapter 1? On the uh, Sunday just before Palm Sunday, we started a new series, kind of reading our way through this New Testament letter. Uh, and right from the outset, we, we clarified our true identity as Christians. Although Christian is not a title or a term that you'll find in Ephesians or in any of Paul's letters. And, and I'll come back to that. But as we read the first 14 verses of chapter 1, we confirmed our identity in 11 I am statements. If we could have the next one there, Ashley, as we boys not quite working. In 11 I am statements. Now, given that it was three weeks ago, I'm not expecting us to remember all 11, but I'm hoping that we'll remember at least two, right? I'm setting the bar low, okay? So, can anybody remember any of the 11 I am statements we discovered in the first 14 verses of Ephesians chapter 1? Sorry, what was, sorry, give me that again. I am a saint, I am a saint. yep. I am blessed, it's two, great. I'm a believer, three. Chosen, four. In Christ, five. Secure, six. I'm getting encouraged. Secure, six. What? Pardon? Blameless in his sight. Was that one of the 11? I'm not sure, Dorothea. We'll check in a minute. I can't even remember myself. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but it's a good one. It's a good one. Let's include it. There's 12. No, it's not in Ephesians. Another one? Forgiven, redeemed, brilliant, right, I'm ecstatic. I'm just going to quit now. Right, here we go. I'll try this now. Yeah, sorry. Oh, there it is now. There's the 11. I am a saint. I am a believer. I am in Christ. I am blessed. I am chosen. I am adopted or I'm a child of God. I'm covered in grace. I'm redeemed. I'm forgiven. I'm sealed and I'm secure. That is who we are. Period. And therefore, none of us should suffer from an identity crisis. So we're going to pick up from where we left off three weeks ago at verse 15. And so please stand with me as we read down to verse 23. And it's going to be on the screen. For this reason, says Paul, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you? What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all 
in awe. Grab a seat. Three, uh, three weeks ago, I suggested that we, we tend to shy away from the very first I am statement on that list. I, I am a saint. We're slightly uncomfortable with that word. But right at the start of his letter, in verse 1, Paul begins by designating all those in the congregation at Ephesus and all of us in our congregation as saints. This morning, in the verses we just read, that term crops up two more times. It was in verse 15. It was in verse 18. And so I want to revisit the term and just tease it out a little further because a few of you did speak to me about it three weeks ago. Paul actually uses the term and the title saint six more times in this letter. So that's nine times in total. In fact, saint is Paul's noun of choice for the people of God in every one of his letters. Now, down through the centuries, saint appears to have been dropped from our vocabulary in favor of Christian. But what is fascinating, and I'm sure you know this, or you've heard this before, Christian the term Christian only occurs three times in the entire New Testament and never in Paul's writings. Surely that is significant. Or at the very least, it's worth noting. The majority of us sitting in this room are saints. And yet I reckon saying, I am a Christian, rules off the tongue, whereas saying, I am a saint, sticks in the throat. Now, a few of you are nodding at me because you know that, that this is, we're reluctant to use this language. Take a look around you this morning. Is saint a word you would naturally use to describe this mixed bag of people? or other Christians with whom you are familiar? It's probably not. And that's because, and I, I touched on this a few weeks ago, saint has unfortunately acquired an almost elitist vibe. It's a restrictive term that's reserved for outstanding super-Christians who have gone through some kind of rigorous examination and then been installed in a hall of fame. And so for me, for you, for us to identify ourselves or to refer to ourselves or to call ourselves saints, that jars. It kind of creates dissonance. It doesn't sound right. And so the question is, what do we do with this core identity term, this key biblical word? Do we drop it? Do we gloss over it or do we simply conclude or decide that Paul, if anything, was being a little or a lot naive in using it in the first place? That if he really knew the people in Ephesus, if he really knew Windsor Baptist Church, if he really knew me, he wouldn't use that term. 
I wonder if you ever done something for someone, something decent, something admirable, and they have turned around and said to you, oh, you're a saint. And what's your immediate response? I'm no saint, if only you knew me. All right? But however we feel about this word or react to it, Paul uses it every single time to identify us. And here's why. And this is, this is the critical bit. Paul deliberately and intentionally calls us saints because of what God has done for us and is doing in us. We're not saints because of anything we have done. We are saints because of everything God has done. God has been. God is at work in these people's lives in Ephesus. God has been. God, God is at work in our lives. And therefore, as the people of God who have been saved by Jesus and who have therefore been set apart and made holy, we are, you are, they were saints. End of. We're defined by what God has done and is doing. Let me take you back to verse 3. And this, this is so important. Because here is what Paul says in verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has. So this is about what our God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, has done. And what has done? What has God done? Well, from verse 3 to 14, he has blessed us, chosen us, adopted us, redeemed us, forgiven us, covered us in grace, secured us by his Holy Spirit, sealed us with his Holy Spirit. And therefore, because of what God has done, not because of anything I have done, because of what God has done, I am blessed, I am chosen, I am adopted, I am redeemed, I am forgiven, I am covered in grace, I am sealed, I am secure. Voices trying to define us from all different directions and at all ours. This is who we are. And a key starting point and returning point is by looking in the mirror and seeing saint. It is by looking around you this morning and seeing saints. It's where Paul starts, he names them as such. Not because of who they are in themselves, but who God is. Not because anything they have done, but because of everything God has done. And so let's not lose that word from our vocabulary. That is who we are. Now, does that mean we will live like saints? We're all too aware of our mistakes and our mess. But part of the reason for writing this letter is to remind the saints to live a life worthy of their calling. Those of you who know the book of Ephesians know that right at the start of chapter four, the second half of this letter, Paul begins it by saying, now, Live a life worthy of your calling. Having identified you, having discovered your true identity, now live this out. And as we read this morning, and we'll look at this in a moment, Paul then prays for the saints in Ephesus because he wants them to grow as saints. But you see, if our starting point is unsure, if our starting point is confused, if we struggle with our identity, 
If we don't know who we are, if we suffer from an identity crisis, that is going to affect and potentially stunt our growth in discipleship. And so if you're struggling to say this morning, I am a saint. As I said three weeks ago, identity determines behavior. How you see yourself and define yourself will profoundly impact how you live. And Paul wants us to see ourselves as saints and then to live in the light and in the wake of our true ID. How do you see yourself this morning? Through what lens are you looking at yourself? How other people define you? How you feel about yourself? Is that how you define who you are? Or how God sees you? And what God says about you? Because you belong to him, saved by Jesus, set apart. You're a saint. And with that in mind, or with that in place, let's now look at how Paul prays for these saints, for us. And specifically what he prays for in his desire to see them live accordingly. But even before we kind of consider the how and the what, it it must have been so encouraging for these people. To hear this letter read from this great apostle and to discover in verse 16 that this guy never stops praying for them. Never stops giving thanks for them and remembering them in his prayers. Do you know, to know that someone is praying for you can mean so much. It means so much. It's, it's one of the privileges we have. The opportunity, the ability to speak to our Father in heaven and commit one another to God in prayer. Paul, despite his busyness, despite his current circumstances, remember he's writing this letter suffering in prison, Despite his very own issues, very real issues, he prays regularly, not sporadically. He prays consistently, not erratically, for others. And that in itself is a challenge and it's a reminder that we are invited to do that. This is what it means to belong. It's part of saintly living. Praying for our brothers and sisters corporately, in small groups, on our own is important. And Paul models it, not just here, but time and time again as we read his letters, we're struck by the fact that he constantly is praying for his family. Beginning of Philippians, I thank my God every time I remember you in all my prayers. For all of you, I always pray. Beginning of Colossians, we always thank God, the Father of, our Jesus, of Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Beginning of 1 Thessalonians, we always thank God for all of you and continually mention you in our prayers. Beginning of a second letter to Timothy, I thank God whom I serve as my ancestor did with a clear conscience as night and day I constantly remember you in my prayers. Praying for one another is a privilege and a responsibility and therefore if this is a holy habit that has disappeared or has been toned down in your life, if you rarely spend any time in any of the above contexts, corporately, in small groups or on your own praying for one another, please, please rediscover this essential practice and language of true saints. 
How much time this week have I spent praying for others, praying for you? And I'm the pastor. I get paid to do that. And one of the most loving things you can do for anyone is pray for them. Look at verse 15. Paul refers to something he's heard about these saints. Their reputation has gone before them. And what is their reputation? I have heard about your love towards all the saints. And one of the most loving things you can do for each other is pray. One of the most tangible expressions of love that we can show each other is to pray for one another, which Paul now does. But, it, but it's what Paul prays for them is, that is so interesting and it's so helpful for us. And if you're ever stuck wondering, well, what do I pray for the person sitting beside you? Think about this for a minute. If I was to say to you, I want you to pray for the person sitting beside you, what would you pray for? What would you pray for? Particularly if you don't know them, what, what would you pray for? Well, what Paul prays for them provides a blueprint. Here are three great things to pray for today and every day for one another. Here's, the, here's it in a nutshell, if you like. Here is the headline. The prayer is that they would know. And then Paul says that they would know three things. If you have a copy of God's word in front of you, look at verse 17 is the first one, that they would know God better. Look at verse 18, that they would know the hope that they have. Look at verse 19, that they would know the great power that is at their disposal. They would know God better. They would know the hope that they have. They would know the great power that is at their disposal. Whatever else we might pray for one another, here is the ultimate prayer list. And it starts with what has got to be just the most important thing you can ask for for anyone, that they would know God better. Let, let me show you the verse again. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation, what, so what? So that you will know him better. Knowing God, knowing Jesus, there is no greater thing as we sometimes sing, and it's true. There is nothing more important than knowing Jesus. Nothing. In, in Philippians, Paul puts it like this, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. I consider everything else a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus. And so what is his prayer for the saints in Ephesus? What is his prayer for us? What should be our prayer for one another? That we would each know God better. If you're unsure what to pray for the person sitting beside you this morning, pray that. Pray that they will not settle for mediocrity or for knowing God only superficially. Pray that their relationship with God would deepen and like any relationship, that they would nurture it, that they would prioritize it, that they would invest in it, that they would give themselves to it. 
And, and notice how Paul prays that the Father would give them the spirit of revelation, the spirit of wisdom and revelation, so that they might know him better. We're not left to our own devices. As saints, we have the Spirit of God in our lives. Let's go back to the I am list. Verse 13, when you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. So if you're a saint, if you belong to God, you've been saved by Jesus, you've been set apart, you have the Holy Spirit of God within you. And so you are not left on your own to get to know God better because you have the spirit of wisdom and revelation living within you that enables you to know God better. He is part of your identity. And a key aspect of what the Holy Spirit does is he enables us to get to know God better. I'm pretty sure that if I was to just stop now and say, listen, put your hand up this morning. I'm not going to do this. But if I was to say this morning, can you put your hand up if you want to know God better? I guarantee that virtually all of us would do it, not just because it's the right thing to do, but because we all know deep down in our hearts that knowing God is of surpassing worth, that it makes sense, that it's actually what we were created for. Paul longs for the saints in Ephesus to know God better. And so that is his number one prayer for them. And therefore, I can think of nothing better to pray for Glenis, to pray for my girls, to pray for my wider family, to pray for my friends, to pray for you, then you would know the living God more, not less, that your awareness of him would intensify, not reduce, that your understanding of God would grow and increase, that your relationship with him would deepen and develop and not drift. I can think of no better prayer. I pray by God's spread of wisdom and revelation, you would know God better. The second thing Paul prays for is that you may know the hope to which he has called you, verse 18. But, but notice that in order to know this hope, you need to see in a particular way. Beginning of verse 18, it's on the screen. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the eyes of your heart. What, what, that's a strange phrase. What does that mean? Well, what Paul is referring to here is your spiritual eyes, your spiritual vision. This is about being able to see the world as God does. This is about being able to see things around you from God's perspective. This is about being able to see with, through fresh eyes. It's about seeing beyond the tangible and the temporal to the invisible and the eternal. It's seeing that there is more to this world and beyond than we naturally perceive. And if we can see like this, if we can see that everything is not the way it's meant to be, if we can see past the pain and the mess, past the bombs and the bloodshed, past the suffering and the injustice, past the tears and the tantrums, if we can see past those things, we can get a glimpse of the bigger picture. We can get a God's eye view of this world and what he is doing in this world. And that creates 
we live in a world that isn't exactly rammed with hope. There is no realistic hope for the future as far as many people is concerned. And as you look around with physical eyes, you get that, you sense that. Where is the hope today? And therefore, this prayer for the saints, for us, for one another, is that the eyes of our hearts would be lit up. That we would see clearly, that we would see through a God-colored lens, that we would see what's really going on, and we would know hope. It's got to be another great prayer to pray for one another. I pray that you would know God better. I pray that you could see things differently. And no hope. There's a bigger picture. There's more going on. There's an invisible world. There is an eternal dimension to life. And if only we could see that, we would know hope. But verse 18 doesn't end there. And that specific prayer doesn't end there. This hope is further defined. And this is mind-blowing. And we're going to finish here. I know there is one more prayer request, but we'll pick that one up next week. But listen to the rest of verse 18. That you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Let me read that again really slowly. That you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. You see, we probably immediately or initially think of our future hope in terms of our inheritance, okay? So heaven, eternity with God, new heaven, new earth. But what Paul refers to here and prays for here, get this, is our hope of being God's inheritance. His rich and glorious, and is that not staggering? That God has planned that we, the saints, will be his inheritance forever. Take a look around you again this morning. God will inherit us. God will inherit me. Surely that gives us hope. And maybe, just maybe, that also helps us to see and describe ourselves as saints. Now, I realize that we probably don't get that easily. We don't get that naturally. This idea that we are God's inheritance his rich and his glorious inheritance is us. What hope. But this is why we need to pray for one another. We need to pray for one another that we will see that truth in all its brilliant technicolor. And so what do we pray? We pray, God, I ask, I pray, that my brothers and sisters would know you better. And I also pray that they would know the hope that they have, that they would see things differently. And above all, that they would see that they are your 
inheritance. So you are a saint. Because of what God has done. And so let's get over the word. And let's begin to embrace our identity. And pray like never before for one another that we would know. And in light of that, this morning maybe we'll eat and we'll drink differently in light of who we are. Thanks, Nathan.